Well, as you know, Merry Christmas, and we have taken some time now, a little bit of a break from studying the book of Jonah, and we will, Lord willing, return to that in January, in the new year, and we'll be going through that a little bit, and then we'll soon finish it, and then we'll get into another book. And you say, what is that other book? I don't know. Uh, But it'll be one of the minor prophets, maybe Nahum. We say that Jonah is where Jonah wanted Nineveh to die, and in Nahum, he gets his wish. So that's kind of maybe our logic behind it. And there's actually a lot of interesting interplay between uh, the the books of Nahum and in Jonah. Nahum actually quotes a lot from Jonah uh, just because they're both talking about Nineveh. A lot of powerful, powerful messages from that. Joe and I have just begun to write the commentary on Nahum, and hopefully we'll be able to use that to edify the saints. But in any case, we've taken a little bit of time away from that schedule to hear about messages concerning Christmas, and we'll even hear some messages about the new year. And there's a lot to be said about all of that, not only from Scripture, but particularly from the Old Testament, because if you think about it, the Old Testament prepares for Christmas in two very important ways. Two very important ways. And the first way is by direct prophecy. If you think about all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that Jesus would be born of a virgin, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that Jesus would be born of the family of Judah and the family of David. All of these prophecies are coming true. There are things entailed in the book of Daniel. That's why God sends Gabriel, that specific angel, to give the message of good news to different individuals in the book of Luke because Gabriel was the one who gave the prophecies in the book of Daniel predicting Jesus' birth. So what he said to predict, he comes to say it's going to be fulfilled. So there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are in direct prophecy of Christmas. And so the Old Testament has a lot to say in that way about Christmas. But there is a second way that the Old Testament anticipates Christmas, and that is by virtue of preparation. Not just prophecy, which is direct, but preparation, which in a sense is indirect. And preparation itself can even occur on two levels. It can occur logistically. To have Christmas, you got to have a nation. You got to have a country. You got to have a people like the people of Israel. You got to have certain places, like a Bethlehem. You got to even have certain buildings. An extension of the Christmas story is bringing Jesus into the temple. Well, how did you get one of those? Well, that's what the Old Testament prepares for. And so you prepare for the New Testament and Christmas in the Old Testament logistically, but you also prepare for the New Testament and Christmas from the Old Testament standpoint theologically. Because there are a lot of ideas, there are a lot of truths that are carefully articulated and established in the Old Testament so that when you get to the New Testament, so that when you get to the time of Christmas, you understand what is taking place correctly and fully. And what I'd like to do in light of everything that I just said is to talk about that one aspect of preparation, this theological preparation from the Old Testament to the New Testament for the sake of Christmas, and it revolves around one word. So this message should be pretty simple to remember. It's one word. And the word is the word firstborn. The word is the word firstborn. And this word is particularly important to clarify and understand because there's been a lot of confusion about it. You see this word, and I think we all understand this, when people knock on your door, the cults have hijacked this word. And they have used it to argue, well, Jesus must have been created because it says he is the first 
born. So he must have been born. He must have come into existence. He must not have been eternal. And that's what the cults have used this word to erroneously argue. Well, as we are going to study this word, and in light of the fact that the Old Testament prepares for the New Testament, and in light of the fact that the Old Testament even prepares for Christmas, by way of introduction, I just want to make a very important clarification that the Old Testament itself, the Old Testament itself completely articulates and anticipates that the Messiah is going to be divine. This is not just some new idea that comes about in the New Testament or some even very, very new idea that comes in church history. This is something established from the Old Testament itself. And so by way of introducing this idea of firstborn, I just want to make sure that it's crystal clear in our heads that this is the case, that this is not just some New Testament idea of the deity of Christ. It is an Old Testament idea. It is thoroughly in the Old Testament. It is presented well in the Old Testament. And therefore, the message of Scripture is consistent through and through. Now, this isn't just for apologetical purposes, although it may serve that, but it is more than that because it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about making sure we really understand his glory and that he is glorious. And so, like I said, let me walk through some proofs. And you say, well, how are you going to go about doing that? Well, there's actually a lot of ways to demonstrate that the Messiah is God and was prophesied to be God in the Old Testament. And the very fact that there's a lot of ways tells you there's a lot of information in the Old Testament that anticipates that the Messiah must be divine. But let me give you one way, and then maybe we'll shift to another one. We could talk about, from the Old Testament perspective, the Trinity. The Trinity. Starting in Genesis 1. It's not that hard. What does God say when he makes man? Let us make man in our image. Some people say that the us is meaning let us as in God and the angels. Well, there's a problem then, because at that point, you're basically saying, let us make man in our image, which would imply that man was made not only in God's image, but in the image of angels, which is incorrect. And so this is actually the Godhead speaking amongst himself. And that is why even in the parallelism of Genesis chapter one, it says this, and then he made man, he made them male and female. He made two distinct categories to imitate what is happening in the Godhead. The Godhead establishes the reality of communication and love and everything that happens in relationship and the fact that relationships can happen at all because it is based upon the triune's God's head's eternal relationship within himself. And so from Genesis 1, we know there's a plurality within the Godhead. And this is carried out. Some people say, oh, that's weird. That's a strange paradox. That's a strange tension. Maybe for Americans and people in the modern day, but the Jewish people in Genesis and in the Pentateuch and in the Old Testament, it wasn't bizarre at all. It just is the truth. And so you can have statements like this in Genesis 19, verse 24. Genesis 19, verse 24. This is in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know there's massive, massive desolation that takes place in that chapter. And in Genesis 19, verse 24, here's what the text says. Yahweh rained down fire and brimstone from Yahweh on, in heaven. Did you hear that? Did you hear how I said Yahweh twice? Why? Well, because the Bible says it twice. You have Yahweh on earth who's been interacting in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and others, 
and he's raining down fire and brimstone from Yahweh who's in heaven. You have a Yahweh on earth and you have a Yahweh in heaven. You have two Yahwehs. But we know for a fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How can you have two Yahwehs when he's one Yahweh? And every Jewish person says, yeah, no problems. Why? Because they understood. There's no problem when you have the Trinity. There's no issue at all. Here's another example. Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, this is in the context of crossing the Red Sea of the book of Exodus, of the event of the Exodus. And it says that the pillar of cloud was in Israel. And we know, because Exodus 13 tells us this, that the pillar of cloud is the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh himself. But in Exodus 14, here's what it says. Yahweh looks down, presumably from heaven, through the pillar of cloud. Didn't we just establish that the pillar of cloud is Yahweh? So now you have Yahweh looking through Yahweh. How can you have a Yahweh in heaven looking down through a Yahweh who's on earth? How does that work? No problem, the Jewish people say. Why? Because they understood God is triune. So of course these interactions are normal. They're not bizarre. They're expected because if you have plurality within the Godhead, albeit that he is still one of essence perfectly so and entirely so, these things are not strange at all. The Old Testament, and these are just passages noticed in Genesis and Exodus. We haven't even gotten out of the Pentateuch yet. These are the first books of the Bible, so to speak. They've already established the triune God. They've already established a triune God. There's no problem here. But if we're really going to be punchy and we really want to have a higher standard, we could say, well, how do you know the Messiah is going to be God? We know there's a Trinity. We know that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In fact, even in Genesis 1, that is all articulated because in the beginning, God created, yes, and who's hovering over the waters? The Spirit. And what does God do to create everything? He what? He speaks. And in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. So right there, you already have triunity in the scriptures. But how do you know that that will actually be the Messiah? We could raise the bar a little bit. And the Old Testament establishes the necessity for a divine Messiah, and it does so in this simple way. Its starting point is this. Man cannot save. Man cannot fulfill God's commands. Man cannot fulfill the role that God has for leaders. You have people like Moses. Does he succeed? No, he fails. He's excluded from the promised land. Then you got David. He didn't do so well. Just ask Bathsheba and Uriah. And how about Saul? He didn't do very well. The judges, they all failed. Solomon, like I've said before, there's approximately a thousand reasons why he will not work out. There is all these problems with people and the leaders. They cannot save. They cannot fulfill. They cannot capitalize on what God has set out for the Messiah to do. No man can fulfill God's promises and covenants. And by the way, this is absolutely fascinating to understand. But if you study the cults and you study false religion, They often put two things together. Those who deny the deity of Christ are also those who deny the existence of hell. I don't know if you knew that. But if you look at the cults and you study them, those who deny the deity of Christ are also those who deny eternal punishment. 
They might believe in annihilationism. They might believe in some other form of punishment that's temporal, but they deny the existence of hell. And you say, why? Why are these two things connected? Well, in part, it's because people are reading the scriptures with a very rationalistic mindset, elevating their reason as the ultimate arbiter of what is true and false. If they say, well, this doesn't make sense to me. Oh, I can't see this concept in the Bible. Oh, I don't know about that spiritual kind of interpretation. I just want something that is within my reason. This is already bending them against the supernatural, but what it's also doing is it's elevating not only their reason, but themselves. Because who's the one reasoning? You are. And at that moment, when you elevate yourself so high, you don't need a hell because your sin isn't that bad because you believe that you're pretty good. That's why you can be the judge of scripture. And if your sin isn't that bad, you don't, not only not need a hell, you don't need a divine savior. Why would you need one of those? You probably could do it on your own. You just need a little bit of an upgrade and you'll get there. And so at the heart, there is this kind of pride. And so do not be deceived. Those who often believe and believe against the deity of Christ often also do not believe in eternal punishment because it all comes from the same heart of pride. It all comes from the same heart of arrogance. Well, the Bible does not have that opinion. The Bible is very clear. And if you look in the mirror for any point in time, we all know we are incompetent. We are incapable. We cannot fulfill anything. And so it is a great joy for the Old Testament then to give prophecy after prophecy to people who say, how can God fulfill his promise? How can God accomplish these things? There is no person good enough, powerful enough, effective enough to will his plan into existence. How can God make a way? And so then you have these encouraging statements like in Isaiah 7, that the Messiah will be born of a virgin and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And everyone hears that and says, that's how he'll make a way. That's how he'll solve this puzzle. It's not, a, it's not a bogus promise. It's not a fake promise. He will make a way. I see that he has made a way. That's why in Isaiah 9, he's called Almighty God. That's why in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it says this, that the Messiah, the servant, he will be high and lifted up. That phrase is only used of God. In the book of Isaiah, the most famous example is in Isaiah 6.1. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, what? High and lifted up. The Messiah is on the throne. That's whom Isaiah truly sees. And that's what's revealed in Isaiah 52. And then later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61.1, the suffering servant is talking. This is the Messiah talking. And we've already proven that he is God. And here are the words that he says. It's absolutely fascinating. That the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. And the And Yahweh has sent me to proclaim good news. Did you hear that? You have the servant speaking, you have Yahweh sending, and you have the spirit of Yahweh upon this individual. What is that? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. That's the Trinity right there. But more than that, did you hear the language? Yahweh the Father sends me. 
Yahweh sends Yahweh. And this is not just found in the book of Isaiah. Turn in your Bibles just really quickly to the book of Zechariah. To the book of Zechariah. And let me point this out. And you just need to see it in the text. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6 of Zechariah. Sorry, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 6. Not Isaiah. We could go there too, but... Let's go to Zechariah 2, verse 6. And here's what the text says. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh. Who's talking? Yahweh. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven, declares Yahweh. Verse 8. Who's talking? For thus says Yahweh. Now, after glory, he has sent me against the nations. Who's the he? Should be capitalized in your Bible because it's referring to Yahweh. Yahweh is sending Yahweh. Notice who's been talking this whole time. Declares Yahweh, verse 6. Declares Yahweh, verse 6. Again, verse 8. For thus says Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh's the one talking. Okay, if Yahweh's the one talking, look at the end of verse 9 of chapter 2. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. What? Who's talking again? Yahweh. And what does Yahweh say? Yahweh has sent me. What is very clear here? Yahweh sends Yahweh. Yahweh sends Yahweh. Now think about this for a second. You try sending yourself. I mean, what what does that really mean? What does that really look like? You can't do that. You always send somebody else. Yahweh sent somebody else, but the somebody else is Yahweh. This is very clear. This is about Messiah. You say, but are you sure it's about Messiah? Sure. Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. Here's the context. It's a picture. It's a display of how the Messiah will be honored. They're going to put a turban on his head. They're going to put a crown on his head. You say, why? Because the turban is the turban of the priest. The crown is a crown of a king. So the Messiah will be both priest and king. We've heard about this before. Psalm 110 reiterates that. And even Psalm 110 itself is a reminder of the divinity of the Messiah because it says what? The Lord said to my Lord. There is divinity right there. There is that there. But now it will be clearly displayed because they're putting this crown on the Messiah's head. And here's what the text says. Verse 15 of chapter 6. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. The Messiah is talking. Then you will know the Messiah has sent me. It can't get any clearer than that. Yahweh sends Yahweh. The Messiah uses the same language to talk about himself, which means the Messiah is what? Yahweh. In fact, later on in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 12, it says this, the Messiah is talking, and he says, thus says Yahweh. You know it's the Messiah. And he says this, and I will lead my people back to Yahweh. If you were just one Yahweh, one person, and that was all that there was, if you were Unitarian, that's the official title of that kind of cult, then you wouldn't say, I would lead people back to Yahweh. If you're talking, if you're Yahweh and you're talking, you would say, I would lead the people back to myself. But he doesn't. He says, I will lead 
Yahweh, or I will lead the people back to Yahweh, even though Yahweh is the one talking. Yahweh leads people back to Yahweh. Why? Because the Son is leading people back to the Father. That's what's going on. This is totally normal. And it's for this reason that at the end of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, that they will look upon me, and guess who's talking? Yahweh's talking. They will put look upon me, the one that they have pierced. How can they pierce Yahweh? Simple, because Jesus is Yahweh. And while we are baffled by it, the people in Zechariah's day would say, well, haven't you been paying attention for the last, like, 12 chapters? He said this over and over and over and over again. There's without a shadow of a doubt. Jesus is Yahweh. It's established in the Old Testament. In fact, did you notice this language? Yahweh sends Yahweh. Isaiah, Zechariah, Yahweh sends Yahweh. Multiple times in Zechariah. Now, think New Testament with me, John chapter 5, but that's actually just one of many chapters in John. What does Jesus say? The Father has sent his Son. The Father has sent me. Have you noticed how many times it talks about how Jesus has been sent? Jesus has been sent. Why? Because Jesus is alluding to this very language. This is a claim of divinity. This is a claim of divinity. Every word that Jesus says makes a claim of divinity in John. It's just drenched with the Old Testament. And with that, there is absolute clarity. There is absolute clarity that the Old Testament establishes both the necessity and the reality that Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. It has prepared the way for that. And therefore, when the Old Testament uses the term firstborn, they cannot mean the sense that the cults take. It's impossible because they've already established that Jesus is God. So they're using it in a totally different way than what we would be and what the cults have hijacked the word to mean. It's totally different. You say, well, what is that way? Well, that's what we're here to talk about this morning. That's what we're here to talk about this morning. And there is a text that has the one word that we're going to be studying, which is the word firstborn, and it defines it for us in the Old Testament so that you understand how Old Testament prepares for Christmas, and that is Psalm 89. Turn there in your Bibles with me, Psalm 89. And in Psalm 89, verse 27, it says these words, I shall also make him my firstborn. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, before getting to this point, we just need to kind of establish the scene and establish the context of Psalm 89 so we get our bearings a little bit, and there's a lot of edifying material within this. And so by way of context, Psalm 89 is a very skillful didactic psalm that's a maskeel of a gentleman named Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan the Ezraite is a famous person in the Old Testament who knew the scriptures and who was very wise, very insane. And what you have in Psalm 89 are these insights into this covenant called the Davidic covenant. And that's important to know that the background of Psalm 89 is a, uh, uh, an exposition, an exploration of the Davidic covenant. And you say, what is the Davidic covenant? Well, if I was going to sum it up, I would sum it up this way. The Davidic covenant is the one covenant to rule them all. The Davidic covenant is the one covenant to rule them all. That all the promises of God, 
all the guarantees he's made in past covenants, like the Noahic covenant, where there would be rest on earth so that God's plan would go forward, or the Abrahamic covenant, where there would be land and seed and blessing for the nation and through the nation of Israel, or the Mosaic covenant, where God's holiness would be implemented. All of those covenants, with all the guarantees and all the promises and all the expectations, all of them are poured into one covenant, the Davidic covenant. And the person who fulfills the Davidic covenant controls and accomplishes and has sovereignty over all the promises of God, all the power that God has in redemptive history, and all of his promises. That's the power of the Davidic covenant. It is the one covenant to rule them all. And you say, well, that sounds like a pretty powerful covenant. It sounds like the all-powerful covenant. Yes, it is. That's why Ethan the Ezraite wants to talk about it, because it's very profound. In fact, that's what he says in the opening words. That's why in verse 1 of Psalm 89, it says, I will sing of the loving kindnesses, plural, of Yahweh forever. Why? Because God's loving kindness here is so abundant, it's in the plural. It's so amazing in the Davidic covenant, it's in the plural. And he says, Verse two, loving kindness will be built up forever. Did you see the words built up there? David, in the original context of the Davidic covenant, he wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build God a house, but this is what God says to David. I'm gonna build you a house. I'm gonna build you a dynasty. David thought he could do something for God. God reveals what? Oh no, I'm gonna do something for you. And it's all revolving around the word build. And so Ethan says in verse two, That's exactly what God's going to do. He's going to build things up forever. And he makes it explicit in verse 3. I have cut a covenant with my chosen. Who is that? To David, my servant. This is talking about the Davidic king, and it's specifically talking about the fulfillment of that Davidic promise. Who would be the one who fulfills it? Who's the ultimate Davidic king? That's the Messiah. That's why in verse 4 it says this, I will establish your seed forever. That's what the text says. I will establish your seed forever. You say, why does it use the word seed? Because that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where it says what? The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. This is talking about the Messiah. And that's how, because the Messiah will come, he will build up David's throne from generation to generation. And so we're talking about the Davidic covenant here. We're talking about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which is the Messiah. And at this point, before Ethan gets too far more deep into the Davidic covenant, he presses the pause button and he says, let's worship. And this is important. This is important. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, why do we have to study the Davidic covenant? I mean, that's just a lot of theology. And God didn't make any of those promises to me. So why do I have to study them? And, and then we could go on and on with this kind of attitude. People say, well, I wasn't an Israelite delivered from Egypt. I didn't cross the Red Sea. I'm not David and I'm not Goliath. And so why do I have to pay attention to that? And, and they, they keep going. And if you think this is just an Old Testament phenomenon, you can import it in the New Testament. I'm not a leper. I'm not Jairus's daughter. I wasn't one of the 5,000 fed. And then you just keep going on and on and on. And people say, well, why do I have to pay attention? What does it mean? It's not relevant to me. Stop being so selfish. You do realize Israelites could have said the same thing as you. You say, what? Are you crazy? No, think about it. Every Israelite after the Exodus could have said, well, I wasn't one delivered in the Exodus. That's true. That was my dad. That was my grandfather. That was my great-great-great-grandfather. I mean, it's not all of them that were delivered. Not all of them are David. Not all of them are Jairus' daughter. And not all of them are lepers. But Ethan reminds us, this is not about you or me. This is about 
rejoicing and worshiping God because we all have the same God. And he is the one who's done these wonderful things. And what do you learn from God who gives the Davidic covenant? If he can establish a king that rules over everything and fulfills everything, then God is the one who has all authority. And that's why it says in verse five and verse six, for who in the sky is comparable to Yahweh? If he can make the ultimate king, he has all the power and authority. No one compares with God. No one compares with our God. He's greatly dreaded in the council of the holy ones. He is the one who rules the swelling of the sea and he's the one who calms them and he's the one who crushes Rahab, verse 10. He owns everything in the supernatural realm, both by his person and by the exertion of his power. And it's not just that he rules in heaven. Look at verse 11. The heavens are yours. Yeah, we just talked about that. But also what? The earth is yours. The earth is yours. You own heaven, you own earth, the world and all its fullness, you founded them. North and south, you've created them. Everything is God's. Why? Think about the Davidic covenant because it fuels our worship of the one true God and reminds us if he's the one who makes kings, then he's the kingmaker. He's the ultimate one and we worship him. And here's another thing though, verse 15. It's not just that we worship him. Here's another reflection on the Davidic covenant. How blessed are the people who know the loud shout of joy. Here's the irony. You thought the Davidic covenant didn't affect your life. Actually, it does. And you say, why would it lead to blessing? Well, because the people who know the Messiah, they're going to walk in the light of your face. They're going to rejoice all the day. They're going to be, verse 16, exalted. They're going to have beauty and strength. Their horn will be exalted, verse 17. Their shield belongs to Yahweh, and the king belongs to the Holy One of Israel. What is this language of having a shield and having your horn exalted and having beauty and having righteousness and having exaltation? It's the language of victory. Here's, in essence, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant says that the one who wields this wins. Why? Because he fulfills everything. He owns everything. He, he possesses everything. He has dominion over everything. He wins. So if you're on his side, if he wins, then what? You win. And that's the very definition of blessing. Have you ever thought about having that kind of guarantee? That whatever happens to you in life, no matter what happens to you in life, you win because you're on his side. That's amazing. If you had that guarantee in sports, you understand what people would do? If you had that guarantee in football, people would run crazy plays all the time. Why? It doesn't matter. We're going to win. It's guaranteed, right? You play soccer without your feet. Why? It doesn't matter. We're going to win. You swim without your arms. Why? Because you're going to win. It doesn't matter. You run track backwards. Why? Because it doesn't matter. You're going to win. You say, stop using athletic metaphors. Fine. Chess. You're going to use your pawns against everybody. Why? It doesn't matter. I'm going to win. Here's what the Davidic covenant reminds us. There may be terrible things that happen in our lives. Terrible trials. You might walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You might be at death's door. It doesn't matter. You win. That's the declaration of the Davidic covenant because you're on Christ's side and he wins. And that's what the father has assigned to his son. I think that's the definition of being blessed, of being blessed. And so there is so much insight and so much application from this. And you say, well, 
What does the Davidic covenant actually say? What are some details about it? And Ethan says, glad you asked, because that's what we're about to talk about now that I've whetted your appetite. And that gets into verses 19 and following. And that's where we're going to talk about the whole notion of Christ being the firstborn and what that exactly means. But as long as we're talking about context, here's what we need to remember, that the whole context of talking about firstborn is not talking about origins or birth. It's talking about Jesus being king. This is a title for what it means to be a ruler. This is a title about your role in God's plan. It has nothing to do about being born or being firstborn or anything like that. It has everything to do with your royalty. Don't get confused. Just because you're the head of state does not necessarily mean you have a big head. In the same way, firstborn is a title, and it has nothing to do with being born or first. It has everything to do with royalty and what that means that you're that kind of king and what you inherit thereby. And so in light of this, what I'd like to do is work through three points about firstborn. Three points about firstborn, and they're pretty simple. They're pretty simple. One is what it's not. Second point is what it is. And third point is what it demands. All right? Three points. That Psalm 89 tells us about the firstborn. What it's not, what it is, and what it demands. Those are the three points. And with that, let's talk about the first one, what it is not. What it is not. As I said in the context of the Davidic covenant, the emphasis of this word is not about being born. It's not about your origins. It's not about your creation. Rather, it's about your role. It's about royalty. It's about kingship. It's about authority. But you might still say, but Abner, how can that be? You got two words smashed together, first and born. How can it not be about being born or being first born? Really, really. Every time you smash two words together, it means the sum of its parts. Really? Are you sure about that? Every time you smash two words together, it always means the sum of its parts. So a butterfly is a flying piece of margarine. Okay, you say, wow, that's an exception. Sure, what about a strawberry? You eat one of those? So you eat berries made out of straw? Is that what you do? When you call somebody a bookworm, are you calling them an insect? Or do you believe worms are made out of books? What's the aftermath of something? Is that what you do following your homework? There's a reason why we do not believe truly that words are the sum of their parts. It's for this very reason we don't think a quarterback is a piece of your anatomy or the returning of 25 cents. It's for this reason that when you say, oh, look, I made this kind of dessert out of ladyfingers, no one says, oh, you're a cannibal, huh? No one says that. And when you talk about a bulldozer, no one thinks you're talking about a sleeping cow. Words are not always the sum of their parts. That's a complete fallacy. And here, what I'd like to prove to you as we're talking about what it's not is simply this, that firstborn has nothing to do with being born and has nothing to do with being first either. Has nothing to do with either of those terms whatsoever. And let me just give you some examples. You can prove that the word firstborn has nothing to do with being born because it applies to things that are not physically, strictly born. You say like what? Like plants. Are plants born? 
Well, the word Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 4, and Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 38. Plants aren't born. And you might say, well, but they kind of sprout and they grow. So there's kind of a, an analogy there. Fine. Let's think about that analogy. Here's another thing that's not born that the word applies to. Israel, the nation. It, nations are not born physically in that sense. But yet God calls Israel, Exodus chapter 4, my firstborn. Did God give birth to them? Not technically, not truly in that sense. You might say, oh, but there's a metaphor. There's an analogy there. And it just shows maybe like the cults are right because one thing doesn't exist and now it comes to existence. Well, think about this with me. Before Israel was born at Mount Sinai, did the people of Israel exist? And if you say, well, no, they didn't exist, then who did God bring out of Egypt to get them to Mount Sinai? Well, people who existed. Well, then the metaphor, the analogy breaks down. It doesn't talk about something that doesn't exist coming into existence. It's talking about something totally different because it can apply to situations where that's not even true. Don't get confused. Firstborn has something to do with being born as much as a strawberry has something to do with straw. It has nothing to do with it. It's not a prerequisite. You don't use that term for that kind of language. Likewise, it has nothing to do with being first. You say, are you sure about that? Yeah. Think about this example. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, it says this, Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, if you really think hard about this and you know a little bit of the history and the family of Israel, the family of Jacob, Ephraim's definitely not a firstborn. He's not born first. He's a grandkid. So Reuben's the first one. Ephraim's not. And you might say, well, okay, but he is a grandkid and he's one of the sons of Joseph. So maybe he's Joseph's firstborn. Well, Joseph has two sons. One is named Manasseh and the other one is named Ephraim. And guess who's the firstborn? Manasseh. And here's what the text says, and I love it in Genesis chapter 48. It says this in Genesis 48, 14, that Jacob switches hands over the two grandchildren. And he says, and he made Ephraim the firstborn, although Manasseh was the firstborn. What do you learn from this? You can be the firstborn without being the firstborn. You can be the firstborn without being a firstborn. In fact, there's a law in Deuteronomy 21, and it says this, that the son, the younger son of the loved wife cannot be the firstborn if there is an older son of the unloved wife. This is the whole situation of sibling rivalry. You saw this with Jacob's children. You saw this with Joseph's situation. And there was a dysfunction in the family. But what does this prove? What does this imply? People can make whoever they wanted in the family the firstborn. Had nothing to do with being born first. It had nothing to be doing with born at all. It's a totally different idea. And so what do we learn? This word firstborn, it's not the sum of its parts. Why? It doesn't have anything to do with being born. You can apply it to things that are not born. It has nothing to even being born first because you can apply it to things that aren't first. In fact, it gets to the point where you can apply it to things that are neither born nor first, like the nation of Israel. It's not born. Nations can't be born. And certainly, was Israel the first nation on the planet? And the answer is no. Why? Can you say it's a firstborn then? Because it has nothing to do with being first or born. Let me put it this way. In English, we use the word firstborn. And because we use it in English, it makes us cause to think about these words, break it down into parts, and have the entire discussion that I just had with you about why a word is not the sum of its parts and why each part of this word has nothing to do with the term. Fine, fair, good. In Hebrew, this is not a compound word. 
This word has neither the word first nor burn. It has nothing like that. It means something totally different. And so if you ask the Jewish person in Israeli at the time about this word, oh, does this mean that you have to be born? Does this mean you have to be first? They would look at you really weird. And they'd say, well, how would you get, I mean, maybe? Like, not exactly, sort of. You're missing the point. Because this has nothing to do with your origins. It has everything to do with your role and your rights and your prerogative and your authority and your function in a family. That's what this word is talking about. So don't let the cults confuse you. Don't let the cults confuse you. Words are not the sum of their parts, and each part of this word has nothing to do with this word whatsoever. It means something totally different. That's what the word doesn't mean. Let's talk about what it does. Let's talk about what it does. This is the second point, and this is where we're really going to get into Psalm 89. What does this word mean? After all, you can talk about what a word means all day long. There's lots of things firstborn doesn't mean. It also does not mean that you're an alien or that you're a Martian or that, you know, that you're not not born or whatever it may be. It doesn't mean, it can mean a lot of things that there, it doesn't mean. And it's not always just helpful to talk about a word, what a word doesn't mean. You want to talk about a word, what a word means. That's the point. And so we need to actually understand what this word means. And fundamentally, Like I've been saying, it's not being born. It's not about being first. It's about your role in the family. In fact, the most common usage of this word, we translate it as birthright. Birthright, your rights in the family, what you own. In fact, I would simplify it this way for the sake of argument. It is fundamentally two things, what you inherit and your role in the family, that you will inherit everything and you will fulfill the legacy the role, the heritage, the purpose of your family. You are the leader, and everything is on your shoulders. Let me say that again. It involves two things, what you inherit and what you fulfill. That's what firstborn is talking about. Your right to own the major stake in your family and all that they possess and all that they have, and secondly, your responsibility within that, that you are the one on which the heritage, the legacy, the strength, the purpose, the telos of your family is fulfilled. That's what firstborn means. That's what firstborn denotes. And here's the question. Well, Jesus is part of the family line of David. Jesus is part of the Davidic covenant. So when you're inheriting that, what does firstborn mean? What does it mean then to inherit? What does it mean to be the one who fulfills all things? And that is what Psalm 89 gets into. Notice Psalm 89 verse 27, I shall make him my firstborn. Parallel line, and this is so profound. You wanna know what he inherits? You wanna know what Jesus inherits in light of the Davidic covenant? It's found in the next line. What does it mean to be the firstborn? Here it is, the highest of the king's, of the earth. That's what it means. That's what it means. This is a powerful phrase. Let's work through it backwards. Highest of the kings of the earth. Sometimes we think of a king, we think of a ruler, and we think, oh yeah, you got the people over the United States, you got the people over China, you got the people over this country, Canada, Mexico, and all those kinds of things, and they get together. And we kind of isolate people, and we kind of isolate rulers, and we say, yeah, they've got their own territory, they got their own territory, they got their land, they got their country. That's not Christ. Don't make the analogy there. Why? He doesn't just own a part of the earth. He owns what? The whole earth. He is not like any ruler you know now. 
There has never been a ruler in our history that has actually controlled every square millimeter of this world. Jesus will. Jesus will. Why? Because he's the firstborn. He inherits everything. And when we say everything, we mean everything. And he has executive authority. It's not just exhaustive authority because it's over the earth. It's executive authority. He's the king. He's the king of kings. Some people think they have authority because they can just tell somebody else what to do. You know, siblings think about this. I'm the older brother. I'm the older sister. You do what I say. You have to do what I say. That's not real authority. I mean, you might think it is. Kings have real authority. Why? Their word is the law. What they say goes. They are the ones who have the final say. Jesus has the highest executive authority. In fact, speaking of which, he has the most exclusive authority. Sometimes, especially in our culture, in our day and age, you got the UN and all these nations just kind of get together, buddy, buddy, and they talk about things and, and something happens. We don't know what, but something happens, supposedly. At least the news happens. And so in light of that, we think, oh, good, that's what leaders do. Look, Jesus will have a meeting of one. It will just be him. There is no peer. There is no rival. He is not one of many. He is the highest. And the word highest means something that is elevated above the rest so that you can see that it's different than the rest. Jesus is in his own category. This is the most exhaustive authority. It is the most executive authority. And it is the most exclusive authority. What does it mean? Every ounce of power, every aspect of authority, every component of sovereignty that exists in the entire universe will be consolidated into one. He owns it all. And when we mean he owns it all, it doesn't just mean all things. It means all power, all glory, all honor. It's all his. It's all his. Why? Because he's the firstborn. That's his right. That's his right. And all promises will be fulfilled. You say, hey, it wasn't just that you inherit all things, you fulfill all things. That's exactly what you see in verses 28 and 29. Notice what God says, my loving kindnesses will, I will keep for him forever. This is God's covenant grace that will be lavished and it will sustain Christ and it will be manifested and mediated through Christ. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. These are all his promises. After all, the Davidic covenant is the one covenant to rule them all. And so every single promise is being fulfilled in the most lavish and gracious and effusive way. And how many, how many of his promises, all of them, how do we know that? Verse 29, so I will set up his seed. What kind of seed are we talking about? The seed of Genesis 3.15. God says, I'll fulfill every promise even to the first one I ever made, even to the first one I ever made, I'll fulfill them all in Christ, in Christ. That's what firstborn means. It means you fulfill it all and you inherit it all. We need to recover. We need to recover what firstborn really means. Sometimes because of the cults, we get bewildered by it. And even after we get over the bewilderment, we're just pretty nonchalant about it. And we just say, oh yeah, Jesus is the firstborn. That's nice. And we keep moving on. No, we need to have awe when we hear the word firstborn. We need to have awe. And just by way of illustration, you know, there's these British shows, period pieces, and, and you see people in the 1800s, 1700s and such, and they're in this household, this royal household, this nobleman's home, and they're talking to this three-year-old. Have you seen these scenes? And they're like, oh, this is Master William. And, and Whatever Master William says, they do. And you just look at this and you just think, this is weird. The guy is three. You could take him out. 
Like, you could punch him. And what's he going to do back to you? Why is he your boss? This doesn't make any sense. Here's what they understand that we don't. That boy may be three, but he's the firstborn. And he owns you. He owns you. And if that boy has a temper tantrum or a bad day, and he says, kill that servant, what happens to the servant? He's dead. And what they also understand is that boy may be three, but the entire heritage and destiny and the purpose of this family, of which I am a servant and a part of, hangs on his shoulders. And if he fails, I'm dead. So you do everything you can to support that one because he owns you and you depend on him. Why? Not because he's a baby. Why? Because he's the firstborn. And here's what we have to remember about Jesus. When that word firstborn is used, what is it a declaration of? He owns everything. He inherits everything. And that includes you and me. He owns you. He owns your soul. He does whatever he wants with you. He has that kind of power and that kind of authority. Why? Because he is the firstborn. He has it by right. And our lives and our destiny, it's all secured in him. If he fails, we fail. If he has victory, we have victory. Why? Because he is the firstborn. That is his role in this family. That is his function for everyone. He is the point of the spear, the fulfiller of all things. You could simply put it this way. If you're talking about he inherits everything and he fulfills everything, you could think of it this way. What does firstborn mean for the Lord Jesus Christ specifically? It means this, every knee bows to him. Every knee bows to him. Friend or foe, it doesn't matter. He owns them all. Every knee bows to him and every hope depends on him. Why? Because he's the firstborn. That's his job. Everything now is tied with him. That's what the term means. We need to restore our awe of what it means that he is the firstborn. You bow the knee because he is that. He owns you and he owns me. Well, there's one last point and it's this. What does this term demand? What does this term demand? We've seen what it doesn't mean. We've seen what it does mean. Now we need to see what it demands. And as the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility And that's what we see. Psalm 89, verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments as they profane my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod. If you sin, you will be punished. What's the standard to be the firstborn? Perfection. Perfection. And God still, though, says, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him. Verse 33. So you have this tension The author, Ethan, he's laying out the tension. On one hand, God's going to hold you accountable. He's holy, and he has a standard. On the other hand, he'll never break his promise. And Ethan is holding these two things in tension to ask a question, which is, how does that work out? And the answer is, not so hot initially. Look at verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have cast off and rejected. You have spurned the covenant of your slave. God, I don't understand. Well, I do kind of understand, but I don't understand. I understand why this is happening. Notice the language here. Look at verse 39. It says, you have profaned his his crown to the ground. Then look at verse 34. My covenant I will not profane. Then look at verse 31. Profaned your statutes. 
The problem isn't with God. The problem is with who? People. Us. We're fallible. We're finite. And we're fallen. And so Ethan says, I don't understand how this is going to work out very well. Because we're always in the wrong. How can anyone become the firstborn? And at this point, you have to make a choice. You either have to say that God's promises are all false because there's just no way it's going to happen and it hasn't happened historically, or you're going to have to say that God will make a way, that he'll do something, that he'll do something different. And that's the latter is the choice that Ethan makes. Notice what he says, verse 50 of chapter 89. He says this, remember, O Lord, the reproach of your slaves. Verse 52, blessed be Yahweh forever. He knows God will make a way. And how is it? that God can make a way if no man, no human being, no pure human could ever fulfill the Davidic covenant. What's the only way for that to happen? The Messiah has to be God. And that's why there's such joy. It's not just theological facts that is taking place in passages like Isaiah 7 or Psalm 110 or any of these texts that teach about the divinity of the Messiah. It's not just, oh, good, Bible trivia. I know Jesus is God. Oh, good, I can fight the cults. Jesus is God. For the Old Testament hearers, they say, finally, I understand how God is going to solve everything. I finally understand that God hasn't lied in his promises I finally understand how God is going to fulfill all things when I can't do it. And what's the answer? He will do it for you. What you could never do, he will do. And that is the greatest joy of the heart. You see, Psalm 89, here's the irony. Cults use the word firstborn to argue that Jesus isn't God. Actually, the context proves that he what? He has to be because no one could fulfill the Davidic covenant otherwise. You say, what does this have to do with Christmas? Yeah, Jesus, we get what he's not. He's not created. We get what he is. He's the firstborn, heir of all things and fulfiller of all things. And we get what he must be. He must be God. But what does this have to do with Christmas? You know, the New Testament uses the word firstborn very technically, very, very technically. Listen to the following statements. Romans eight twenty nine. He's the firstborn among many brothers. Why? Because he's the one that fulfills everything fulfills salvation for his own. He's the fulfiller of all things. Colossians 1 verse 15, Revelation 1 5, he's the firstborn from the dead. Why? Because he's the fulfiller of everything. He's the tip of the spear. Every hope is pegged on him. And so he will even overcome death so that we all can. He's the firstborn. That's his job. He's Hebrews 1 6. He's the firstborn of the world and the firstborn of creation. Why? Because he's the one who owns everything. He owns everything. That's why he's given that title. And in Hebrews 12, 23, he's the firstborn of the church. Why? Because we as the church, we depend on him. He's everything to us. He owns us and he fulfills all things for us. That's his role. Have you noticed? Firstborn is always used so technical. It's always used in these lofty terms. That's the consistent usage of the word in the New Testament over and over and over and over again. And a lot of these usages are written by the apostle Paul. Now, Paul had a best friend. You know who his best friend was? Luke. And that's Christmas. Luke chapter 2. Here's the one last usage of the word. Luke chapter 2. 2 verse 7. You should know this text. It's Christmas. And what does the text say? 
The text says this. And she gave birth to her what? Firstborn son. And you say, well, of course, that's what she gave birth to. No. Yes, that's what she gave birth to, true. But no, in this sense. If all you needed to understand was that Jesus was born first, it's already established in context. The word born or give birth is already used, and you know Jesus is the first one, so it's not really saying very much. But this word has never been used that way. This word has never been used that way, particularly with the Davidic king. It's never been used just to indicate birth order. That was never the point of the term. The point was, this is the one who's the king, the highest king of all the earth. This is the one who owns everything and everyone. This is the one who fulfills everything. And this is the one who is the resolution of that whole tension of how can God fulfill his promises if we're just not good enough to do it. Here's your answer. It's him. He's the firstborn. He's everything you needed and he owns you. Yeah, Jesus may be a baby, but what Luke is declaring here is, this is the one who owns your life. Understand that. He may be born humble, but he is born your master. He is born your sovereign, and you bow the knee to him. He owns you, and you depend on him. Yeah, he may be cute, but you are relying on him to do his job, otherwise you die. That is this child. He's the one who will change history because he is the first born. And he's the one who resolves the question of God's promises. And therefore he demonstrates to us without a shadow of a doubt that God is not just with us. He's for us because he will keep his promises. Why? Because where we could never do it, God will do it all and he will do it in his son. And so that is the nature of a word, the word firstborn. But hopefully you haven't just learned about a word. You learned about the Lord Jesus Christ and all our knees should bow before him because he's the firstborn. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you for your word and this word, firstborn, recapture in our minds its grandeur and its authority and its weightiness and help us then to understand we depend on him. All our hopes depend on the Messiah. All knees will bow before your son. He is the firstborn. May we treasure him for how you have exalted him and declared him to be his function and role and royalty in this world, in this plan, and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.